My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Glad you're with us today. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews uh, chapter 9. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and start making your way there, that's where we'll be. Um, as a pastor, I, I get the great privilege of getting to attend uh, a lot of weddings. Uh, a lot of weddings. And a lot, a lot of those weddings, I actually get to have the best seat in the house, uh, although it's not much of a seat. Uh, but, you know, getting to officiate a lot of those weddings, I, I get to stand and, and have like a, the best view of everything that's going on in that moment uh, uh, as I officiate a wedding ceremony. Uh, and, but when you go to a lot of weddings, and, and I know that I'm not the only one who gets to go to a lot of weddings. Uh, in a church like this, there's a lot of weddings all the time. So, but when you get to go to a lot of weddings, there's sort of a danger sometimes that, that it, it can kind of become just like empty, ritual, boring, uh, you know, and, and kind of lose some of the, the depth of meaning if you're not careful. But I honestly really don't feel that way uh, because I, I really uh, have been grateful uh, of, to see and appreciate so much of the deep symbolism that is, is present in, in a wedding ceremony and, and in the marriage to follow. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of God's loving pursuit of us that you, you see kind of portrayed in that moment. Uh, typically, you know, in a wedding ceremony, the, the groom, at least of, of the wedding party, is the, the first one who enters. He's the first one who, who makes his way into the, to, to, to the room or the, the space, the sanctuary where the, the wedding is taking place. And it's very symbolic uh, of the reality that it is Christ. It is Christ who initiates our relationship with him. He pursues us. He initiates. He saves us in the covenant relationship by his finished work. He initiates. And then the groom is, is up in the front uh, of the, the sanctuary, kind of awaiting his bride uh, as she makes her way down that aisle, however long it might be, in a beautiful white dress, right? Symbolic of, of being clothed in Christ's righteousness. Symbolic of that moment, you know, that we're all looking forward to when Christ returns and we, the church, prepared as his bride, will, will be glorified, will be radiant, spiritually beautiful, prepared as his bride on that day for that final ultimate wedding day. And, and whenever the bride enters the room, uh, not that I don't pay attention to the bride at all, I always want to look at the groom, right? And, and sometimes in my best seat in the house. I don't have the best seat for that. Uh, so I have to kind of lean over a little bit just to try to get a side glimpse of a groom's face. Because in that moment, like when, when a, a, a groom sees his bride walking in for that first moment, uh, the joy, the sheer joy that you see on his face, it's a picture of the way that Christ rejoices over us, his children, his people that he rescues and he redeems. There's beautiful symbolism in so many ways. Uh, the exchanging of vows and rings, symbolic of the covenant relationship that, that Christ establishes with us. It's all a symbol in so many ways of God's pursuit of us. Rituals like that, you know, ceremonies like that can be full of deep and symbolic meaning. Or they can become cold and boring and empty if we're not careful. And the author of Hebrews here in, in Hebrews chapter 9, he, he's going to remind us of some symbols and rituals involved in the worship of God in the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Covenant. And he seeks to point us that behind those rituals and, and symbols is, is a deeper meaning, a deeper meaning to it all. That's what we're going to see in, in Hebrews 9, uh, 1 through 10. If you haven't gotten there already, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me 
for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood for which he offers for himself, And for the unintentional sins of the people. But by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time and this day uh, to gather together as your people. Uh, may this not be some empty ritual, some symbol that loses its meaning, but rather May you remind us in the the things that we do as we gather for worship and we um, share in the Lord's Supper as we we commune with you and with one another, Lord, just the deep meaning and hope that is communicated in those things. Lord, we pray uh, that you speak to us by your word today, that you help us to know how it is you desire to relate to us, how it is you desire for us to respond in light of your grace And may we appreciate you and love you, not under compulsion, um, but because we are just so grateful for the mercy and the grace that you've shown us. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. So what we see here uh, are some tabernacle, some symbols, some tabernacle symbols and rituals, and, and, and we're being pointed to the deeper meaning uh, that we're, mean, we're meant to see uh, through them. First, uh, the tabernacle symbols. Uh, a contrast, of course, is being made in this point in the book of Hebrews. It's been going on for a little bit here in chapter 8, uh, seven, chapter 7, 8, and 9. Uh, a contrast is being made here kind of between the old covenant and the new covenant and their effectiveness uh, for, to secure forgiveness and salvation. Uh, this contrast begins here with a description in chapter 9 of the Old Testament tabernacle and its layout and its furnishings uh, in verses 1 through 5. Let me read that again. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, right? So the first century Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews is communicating to, uh, they're, they're the first hearers of this, this letter, this book, this really kind of sermon. Uh, they would have been very well acquainted, very well acquainted with the details of the tabernacle. And so a lot of detail wouldn't be needed to go into for them to understand what is in the tabernacle and what the contents, the symbols in that tabernacle represent. But for most of us, we are not so familiar, right? Uh, so a little more explanation is likely helpful for us to understand the symbolism of all that's mentioned here in these verses. And so the author of Hebrews, he kind of takes us on like a, he's like a realtor here, giving us like a virtual tour through the Old Testament tabernacle. He's just walking us in and here's, you know, here's the living room, here's the kitchen. Not, not exactly, but he's, he's walking us through these areas of the tabernacle and kind of showing us here's, here's what, what's here. And the tabernacle was, of course, a, a portable tent that served as the, the epicenter of Old Covenant worship. A really big tent, right? Uh, we're told it's a 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. That's what translate to, uh, you know, I, I did the math for the cubits for you. Well, actually, my study Bible did. But uh, 150 feet long by 70 feet wide, 75 feet wide. Uh, it's a big tent. It was a place where Israel offered sacrifices and the priests of Israel interceded on behalf of the people. It was the epicenter of old covenant worship which is why the author of Hebrews here refers to it as an earthly place of holiness. The tent reflected the holiness of God. It, it communicated to the people God's transcendence, his perfection, his righteousness, his otherness from the people. It was a vibrant reminder of God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai following the Exodus. Within the tabernacle were the holy place. And the most holy place. So as you, as you would enter into the tabernacle, uh, the, you would first enter into actually the outer court, uh, the outer courtyard that was accessible to all of the Israelites. Any of the Israelites were allowed to, to enter into the outer courtyard. But only the priests of Israel were allowed to then enter into the next section, the holy place, to go into that portion of the tabernacle, which was separated by a curtain from the outer courtyard. In the holy place, the, the author mentions to us, there's a lampstand. There's a, the table, and, and on the table, the bread of presence, right? Twelve loaves, symbolic of the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, the holy place was, was separated by a second curtain from the, the most holy place. And inside the, the most holy place, as we continue our little tour, we're, we're told about the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark, we're told that there was a, a golden jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, uh, the tablets of the covenant. The cover uh, of the Ark had cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat where they were tasked with guarding the presence of God. These items are full 
of symbolic meaning, reflecting God's great acts of redeeming Israel out of slavery in, in, in Egypt. Uh, they demonstrated God's covenant faithfulness and holiness, but they each communicate specific things as well. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of the agreement between the Israelites and God, and God had commanded them to place specific things inside of the ark. A jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant were to serve as a permanent reminder to the people. The golden jar of manna served uh, as a permanent reminder of God's miraculous and supernatural provision and rescue. Right, God's rescued the Israelites. We studied through Exodus before we started this book of Hebrews, right? We, we, we walked through the supernatural nature of God's rescue uh, of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, right? It, it was miraculous. It was supernatural. God sends 10 plagues upon the people. The, he parts the, the Red Sea. Uh, the enemies of God are then drowned in the, the Red Sea as, they, as it comes crashing down on them after the, the Israelites have made their way across. As the people continue their journey in the wilderness, they're they're supernaturally, miraculously provided for and sustained by God. God keeps them alive. He sustains them by providing manna from heaven. Manna, bread from heaven, described in Exodus chapter 16, 14 as a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. You know, I read that every time. I'm just like, frosted flakes. It's frosted flakes, another kind of bread from heaven, uh, if you're me, a weakness of mine, sweet, sugary cereals. Uh, bread from heaven, right? Frosted flakes, the manna. God rescued his people supernaturally. He, he sustained them supernaturally in the wilderness. That's what the jar of manna symbolized and reminded the people, was, was to remind the people constantly, God has rescued you. God keeps you alive. God is your provision day by day by day. Then there's Aaron's staff that budded. It served as a reminder that God has to be worshiped God's way. He sets the parameters for how we are to worship him. God's people, we do not get to pick and choose how we approach him. You must come to God on God's own terms. That's what it tells us. And this is God's way. This is what the staff represents, right? A priesthood and a sacrifice. That's God's way of of coming to him. That's the only way to God. And that's what Aaron's staff symbolized. Aaron and his sons, of course, the first priests who serve as priests for the people of Israel. The tablets reminded the people of their responsibility to uphold the covenant by obeying God's law, his Ten Commandments, right, summed up in the Ten Commandments. That is, it reminded them of the way they were to live in light of God's rescue. You know, in the book of Exodus, God doesn't say, here's my Ten Commandments. If you do these things, I will deliver you. No, God delivers the people and then says, you are my people this is how you will live as my people. This is what it means for you to be my people. You, you live in this covenant relationship with me. They were to be holy as God is holy. The ark itself spoke to God's covenant love for his people. 
and his steadfast faithfulness to them. Those are the the symbols, right? The tabernacle symbols that the author mentions here. And they went hand in hand with the tabernacle rituals. Uh, The author moves from describing the symbols and the elements of the tabernacle to speaking of the ritual acts of worship that were taking place within it. Verses six and seven, look there with me again. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, the most holy place, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, by which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the picture that the author is trying to to get in our brain here is that the tabernacle was a crazy busy place full of activity, non-stop activity, right? It's a tent. And, you know, the people are moving through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. Uh, And so anywhere they stop, they have to set the tent back up. They have to set all these contents back up. They have to reestablish everything. So they're constantly taking it, setting it up, taking it down, moving it, doing this again. But once it's set up, right, once it's set up, there was always activity going on in the tabernacle. It's like a a never-ending church gathering, which for some of you who are like, that's kind of how I feel right now. Um, uh, no, it, it, more, more never-ending than any gathering at Redeemer has ever been. And trust me, if you feel that way now, you should have been here a few years, like five, six, seven, eight, eight years ago. We've gotten better. Uh, we had some like two-hour gatherings back in the day. Uh, we're, we're growing and we're, we're learning. Uh, but but, uh, but anyway, 24-7 nonstop, that's what I'm talking about. 24 7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, always open, always going, always priests coming in and going out. Because men and women of the people of Israel were always flooding into the tabernacle trying to find peace for their guilty conscience. Constantly. That's what we're told here that the priests were always working, they were always working. That's why the Bible tells us in other places that there had to be a lot of priests. There had to be a lot of priests or they would drop dead from exhaustion because they were constantly working, always on their feet, always coming and going, crazy, crazy busy here, right? Activity going on all the time, priests going in and out of the holy place. And we're meant to keep that in a frame of reference as we think about what we've been told several times in the book of Hebrews already, that Jesus Christ is our high priest who is seated, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. He's seated. The tabernacle priests, always moving, always coming and going. But the one place in the tabernacle that that saw very little activity was the most holy place. Any of the priests were allowed to go into the holy place, that that first section, but only the high priest could enter the second section, the most holy place. And only the high priest could do that on one day of the year. One time, one day. The day of atonement. Which, uh, wouldn't you know, in God's providence, uh, is actually today. Today for the Jewish people. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, starts at sundown tonight. Uh, we'll go till sundown uh, tomorrow. Uh, 
but uh, it's a little bit different uh, to today than it was uh, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. But we're told here, and we read in the Old Testament, that only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, could one man, the high priest, enter the most holy place. But that was only after going this very thorough preparation. Let me give you a little snapshot of what, what this looked like. The high priest was put into seclusion a week beforehand, a week before the Day of Atonement, so that he might not accidentally touch or eat anything that was unclean. So clean food was just brought to him. Here you are, you're out here, you're not allowed to leave. Like it's like quarantine, hardcore lockdown, seven days. We're all like, yeah, we, we're ready. Um, uh, and, and they're bringing clean food so that he, he doesn't corrupt himself by eating or touching anything unclean. The night before, he would stay up all night praying and reading God's word, seeking to purify his soul. Then on the day, he bathed head to toe dressed in pure, white, unstained linen. And then he entered into the most holy place first to offer an animal sacrifice to atone and pay, or pay for the penalty of his own sins. And then he came out and then he bathed again and then he put on new white linen and then he went in a second time to offer a sacrifice for all of the priests and their sins. And then he came out and then he bathed again, and then he put on new white linen, and he went in a third time, and he offered a sacrifice to atone for the sins of all the people. But don't miss what it says here in verse 7. This offering, this sacrifice, was only for the unintentional sins of the people. So we tend to think of sin in, in kind of two categories, right? There's sins of commission, where we, we, we do things that God commands us not to do. We commit sin, right? We, sins of commission, where we do what we should not do, what God commands us and forbids us not to do. Sins of commission. But there's also a second category, right? Sins of omission, where we fail to do what God commands us to, where we, we don't do something that we should. But here we're told of a third category of sin, unintentional sin, Sins that we commit unknowingly or unintentionally without really awareness of the fact that, hey, I'm actually sinning right now. It's for these unintentional sins that the high priest enters the most holy place to offer a sacrifice for all the people on the day of atonement. For those sins of commission and omission, uh, right, the people were steadily streaming in 24-7 all the time into the outer court to meet with a priest and offer a sacrifice ongoing. And in saying that this was only for the unintentional sins and referring to the need for a yearly repetition of these events on the day of atonement, the author of Hebrews is pointing us to the reality once again that the old covenant with its priests and its sacrifices was not able to secure forgiveness. It was ineffective in providing real atonement for sins paying their debt in full. It could not perfect the consciences of the worshipers. It could not. But as we've seen numerous times in the last couple chapters of Hebrews, that's not the point. That was not the purpose of the old covenant. It wasn't meant to perfect. 
It wasn't, it was, it wasn't meant to, to accomplish full redemption and rescue and salvation. It was meant to point us to the deeper meaning, a, a deeper purpose and a deeper reality that it represented and was pointing forward to. Look with me again at verses eight through 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You see, a a great error that was made by many of the Israelites, uh, and, and to be fair, it's made by many of us Christians too, is that they and we continually elevate symbols and rituals to a sacred status. But what we're being told here is that the God is, is saying to us, the symbol and the ritual, they are not the point. They're not the point. It's what's underneath the symbol and what's underneath what's behind the ritual that's sacred. You're making the symbol and the ritual sacred and they're not sacred. Over and over again through the Old Testament, God rebukes his people. He rebukes them because they take things that were meant to symbolize and represent the main point and and they're trying to to make it the sacred thing in place of the deeper reality that 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 thing is pointing to. Let Let me point you to a passage that highlights God's real desire. It's actually a passage that we, we always read in, in our liturgy today. Way to go, Jonathan. Uh, it, it's not for, good job. Uh, it's not for rituals and, and symbols, right? After David's adultery with Bathsheba, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He has uh, her husband killed, murdered. David, in his confession, in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he, he says this. He's praying to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. God does not want him to go through motions here just to do stuff that pays a debt. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, O oh God you will not despise. In this moment, David has clarity from the Lord to know that what the Lord desires from him is not ritual and symbol. He desires his heart, his heart to be broken, his heart to be repentant, his heart to to be grieved by his sin, sorrowful over his sin, desiring to, to leave it and forsake it, desiring God's mercy, In other words, the sacrifices and offerings weren't intended because God is just hungry. He needs you to fix him a snack. It's not because he needs you, like, here's how you appease me, go kill something, and then I'll I'll be off your back. But rather, God instituted the sacrificial system to show us just how serious our sin is. To show us the severity of, of our separation from God, the seriousness of our sin, that it's costly. 
In sacrificing a bull or a goat, God was trying to burn into his people's hearts and minds the weight of their sin, the severity of their sin. It separates you completely from God in his presence, represented in the tabernacle and its structure and who's allowed to enter what place and when. It separates you completely. And for forgiveness to be offered, for restoration and relationship to be made, blood must be shed. Death is the penalty for sin. Either you must die for your sin, not only physically, but cosmically and spiritually, or or someone else, something else, someone else must die. It was meant to communicate that. The tabernacle was meant to point us beyond itself. It was meant to show us its inadequacy to deliver the forgiveness and cleansing that we we ultimately truly need because it was meant to expose our, our need for something that would truly deliver us and sustain us ongoing. The reality of how the holy place was restricted only to the priests and the, how the most holy, place, most holy place was restricted only to the high priest on that one day of the year That restricted access is meant to show us how holy and other God is from us. Like we cannot comprehend, we cannot put a limit or a list on his holiness. It's infinite. It was meant to also show us how unbridgeable our separation is from him because of our sins, because of our sins of commission and omission and even our unintentional sins. We are cut off. There is no ritual, no amount of rituals that we can perform that will make us right with God. You cannot work your way back to him. Uh, you know, you, you may not, and uh, honestly, we'd be a little bit concerned about some of you if you are running around the hillside looking for goats and bulls uh, to sacrifice right now. That would be concerning. We'd probably call someone. Um, you're probably not doing that. I hope you're not doing that. But, but some of you, nonetheless, you think like this. Man, I, I've totally blew it today. I wrecked myself in my sin. I better get to church. I better make sure I'm there this Sunday. You know, I better put a little something extra in my, my giving this week. I better find someone to go serve right now. I better get into the Bible and, and read it more and, and pray more. I, 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 need to, I need to make this right. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. That's not what God's trying to tell you. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to be at church or he doesn't want you to read his word. He doesn't want you to serve other people. But he doesn't want you doing those things because you think that's what will get you back in his good graces because that'll get him off your back because you're trying to pay him back or earn his favor. He doesn't want you to do it for those reasons. It's not what he's trying to tell you. He's not interested in your sacrifices and your offerings. The heavy curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was meant to communicate that as long as it's still up, there is no full cleansing of conscience available. by going through the motions and doing what you think you can do, you're not gonna cleanse your conscience. 
you're not gonna do enough. No amount of effort will fix it. You can't work your way to God. You can only access him and worship him on his own terms. The repetition of the day of atonement and the other sacrifices that that needed to be perpetually offered, uh, um, it could only deliver limited forgiveness, kind of a covering over, but not a removal of sin. By our efforts alone to obey God and offer sacrifices and have sacrifices offered on our behalf by human priests, we would never be fully forgiven and delivered from sin. But that's not the point. It was meant to point us to the only way we could ever have full access and full forgiveness and live with our consciences clear and cleansed. The tabernacle and its rituals were all meant to point us to Jesus, to Jesus. Jesus is himself the true and better tabernacle. In John chapter one, right, the tabernacle represents God's desire to, to dwell with his people, to be their God and them to be his people. It's the old covenant way of God doing that because of the lack of, of a lasting, securing forgiveness of sin. Uh, there had to be separation demonstrated in the tabernacle. But God in the person of Christ the eternal word, the eternal son of God, we're told in John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That, that, that word dwelt uh, literally in the Greek means he pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. He is the, the true and better tabernacle, right? Jesus comes to, to dwell among us And when we turn to him in repentance and faith, we are united with Christ. And we're told in the scriptures, he actually dwells within us as Christians by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Christ is in you, brother, sister. He's in you. And together we are being built together into a temple for the Lord. You see how he draws near? granting us incredible, unbelievable, full and ongoing access to God. We can know this because the gospel accounts of the crucifixion tell us that at the moment Jesus dies on the cross, he he declares, it is finished. And at the moment of his death in the temple of Jerusalem, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying and symbolizing very clearly that free, full, ongoing access to the presence of God is now available to anyone who is in Christ. It's available. Better than a lampstand, Jesus comes to us and tells us that he is the light of the world. And he invites us to to enjoy and bask in his glory and reflect it and share it and proclaim it to others. And he declares to us that he is himself the bread of life. With the golden jar of manna symbolized, Jesus is in reality. He is our supernatural provision. Not just the symbol symbol of our rescue and, and our ongoing sustenance, but the very source of all of it. Jesus comes to us as our great high priest who offers himself as the ultimate, once and for all, eternally effective sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ, the son of God, he he comes and he keeps the law of God in our place perfectly. He keeps the covenant where we fail in every way. And and, and then he goes to the cross, he offers himself once and for all for our sins, for all 
of our sins. Sins of commission, sins of omission, unintentional sins. All of them paid in full by his once for all sacrifice. There's no need to repeat it year after year. No need to come rushing into the temple and offer another one. Day by day, as we fall in our sin, sins, past, present, future, paid in full. He's raised on the third day. He ascends into heaven where he is seated. His work's done. He's not busy scrambling around like a priest in the tabernacle. His work is finished. And he simply intercedes by saying, I paid for that sin. They're covered. They're mine. They belong to us, right? Sons and daughters, that's who they are. He intercedes on our behalf. This, this big glorious truth, all of it, is what verse eight says the Holy Spirit was indicating to us. The way into the holy place is locked to us until it is unlocked for us by Jesus Christ. And when you turn from your sins, when you turn from living for yourself, and when you see your desperate need for rescue, you see how costly your sins truly are. How they separate you completely from God's presence. When you see how desperate your need is and you come and you give yourself to Jesus, you, you put your hope and trust in him as your rescue, he unlocks the way for you into the holy place, which is the way into fullness. It's the, the way into forgiveness and joy. Another way of looking at it is like this. Jesus stands before you today uh, and, and he says to you, you will never ever know the fullness of life that is in me. You will never know the wholeness of life that is in me. You will never know the hope and the freedom of life that is in me if you're still functionally trying to go down to the tabernacle every week and offer a sacrifice for yourself. If you're still trying to fix yourself by your effort. He's saying to you, until you get it, that you can't do anything, that you have nothing of value to offer me, you never find wholeness. Until you get that, you will never get my grace and my mercy. You have to see that it's nothing that you do that makes you right with God. It's all of what he's done. And you come and you give yourself to him. That's what you give. You say, Jesus, you're my rescue. You have to see your need. You have to see your inability to do anything about it. You have to see that Jesus himself has done it all joyfully in your place. And you have to go to him and you have to receive it by faith, by trusting that he's what you need. He's your everything. But when you do that, when you do that, it changes everything. It changes everything for you. So that even in the moment where those thoughts of accusation start creeping in, they come rushing into your head. Man, you haven't read your Bible in days, weeks, months, you haven't prayed well today. You're struggling in this area, fallen in your face. There is no way God could be pleased with you right now. 
You're blowing it. You, you could do so much better. You, why, why are you so lazy? You did that? You didn't do that? How could you? You, you should be doing so much better. When those thoughts, those accusations from the enemy come in, uh, in that moment, in Christ, you can actually say, you're right. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus that he's paid for my failures, for my sins in full. You see, the more that you know Jesus, the more you realize that it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. When those convictions come, they're, 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 they're probably, there are always things to, that need to be repented of there, right? Uh, but it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. It's not you fixing all those things that gets you right with God. But even in the midst of that, you're invited to say, thank God for Jesus. Thanks God for Jesus. The more you realize your conscience is clean, not because of what you do or don't do, but because of what Jesus has done, right? The, the, the more you can rest in that. Don't hear me saying that Jesus makes it so that it's fine for you to, to just go on sinning and, and do whatever you want. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the grace uh, and provision of Jesus is, is so radical, it's so unbelievable that even in the midst of your sin and your failure, it can become an avenue to give him thanks and worship. To reorient your heart and just give him praise for the mercies that you're greeted with each new morning. Because you realize how wonderful it truly is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would love a sinner like you. So much that he would step in and take your place. The wonder of that, when it truly grips you, it won't lead you to abuse his grace. It won't lead you to say, yeah, I haven't learned my Bible in a while. I guess I'll just let it be a nice little dust magnet. No, it will move you to want to be in his word. It will move you to want to pray to him more. It will lead you to want to worship him. It will lead you to want to live your life more and more for him, for his glory. Not because you have to, not because you need to pay him back and earn his favor and earn his forgiveness, but because you already have it. Because you already have it. Isn't it beautiful? God sets the terms for how you are to approach him in worship. And on your own, you can never get to him. He will always be off limits by your efforts if that's what you try to do to get to him. But how marvelous it is that from before the foundation of the world, God has been moving toward you. He's been moving toward you. He approaches you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He does everything required to, to bring you all the way into his presence all the way into his forgiveness and grace, all the way into wholeness. Go to him, go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we don't have the words uh, to express our, our, our thanks and our gratefulness uh, that you pursue us, that you love us, that you come after us even when we're running in the opposite direction from you. Thank you for sending your son 
forgiving him for us. Jesus, thank you for making a way for us to know grace and forgiveness, to know acceptance and freedom, to know rescue, to know a cleansed conscience by faith in you and your finished work. We pray that you sustain us by your grace. Holy Spirit, help us to know the the freedom and rescue that we have in Christ. Help us to live more and more in light of it, knowing that we are your people, that, that we belong to you, and nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us cling to that. Help us to, to share that life and hope with others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.